as you are now in Ephesians 5, I want to ask you to follow along with me as I read from verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The Word of God tells us in Proverbs 18 that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, whatever place you find yourself in in your life, whether you are married or never married or once married or twice married, widowed, divorced, looking forward to the potential of happiness in the future, whatever your marital status or marital condition, those being two different ideas, whatever your marital status or your marital condition may be, God's word is for you this morning to listen carefully and listen clearly. You say, Todd, that potential chapter or that chapter of my life is a thing of the past. I don't need this text. What about the people you love would be my question for you. What about the people in your life or people that perhaps should be in your life that need to know and understand the truth about marriage, particularly on a day when the world has so much to say that, by the way, has crept in and corrupted the church. I suggest that you and I are guilty on some level with regard to thinking things about marriage that we got from the world, particularly in the area of romance. Now, I'm not bagging on romance, please. That's not what this message is going to be about. But do your best, as I would always ask you, to do your best to think through the grid of Scripture. Let the Bible determine what you believe, what you think, what you say to others. And you say, that's a whole lot easier said than done. Yeah, that's why we need each other, right? You need a teacher. You need a shepherd. We all need people in our lives. We need brothers. We need sisters to be those parameters, so to speak, those human living parameters that keep us within the parameters of Scripture. And, of course, that all comes down to biblical discipleship, biblical relationships. We all need that. You may be thinking this morning, you know, I've thought a lot about this topic. As a young girl or even as a young man, you may have thought, you know, I always just wanted to find my soulmate. 
I encourage you to do a little research. I'll leave it to you. Do a little research on that term and find out what its origin actually is. Now, I know that you don't use it the way the world designed it. I know that. You might use it in a good way, but I would encourage you to use more biblical terminology when you think about relationships, especially when you think about the marriage relationship. See, the person who heads from marital disaster and maybe even experiences it can find grace. Do you know that? You may be, or maybe you know someone who today would say, I'm in the midst of marital disaster that, that cannot be overcome. You may feel that way. And I am here to tell you, as a pastor, deeply and passionately devoted to the doctrines of grace, grace is for you, regardless of your marital status, or your marital condition. When we say we're devoted to the doctrines of grace, we are not saying we're simply devoted to the polemic that comes out of the five points of Calvinism. We are truly devoted to grace. And therefore, the the five points that simply bleed out of the Scripture, on nearly every page of Scripture, you'll find one of the five points of Calvinism. We're not saying we're committed to the argumentation that so often defines relationships between those who are devoted devoted to the scripture and those who are not. What we're saying is we're devoted to grace because we're devoted to grace. We can tell people there is grace. God's grace is what you need regardless of your thinking about marriage, your experience in marriage, your lack of experience in marriage. You ever hear somebody say, you know, I really need somebody to minister to me who's been through what, what I'm going through. Really? You need for your pastor to have been divorced. Really? You, you know, I'm really going through a difficulty with cancer. You really need someone to have gone through cancer to minister to you. That's really a selfish perspective. It's not to say that someone who is going through cancer, who has gone through a divorce, hasn't thought through the theological implications of Scripture and are therefore perhaps better prepared to minister to you. But the person who is best prepared to minister to you is the person who is most committed to Scripture. And I suggest that we must be most committed to Scripture in every area, but specifically in the area of marriage, thinking rightly about marriage. You may think you missed the boat. You may even think that you sidestepped God's sovereignty by marrying an unbeliever. So your life is just a big old mess because you made a bad decision when you were 18 or 90 or whatever. You may think that you blew it. There's a sense in which we can blow it, and there's a sense in which we can't blow it to the degree that God's grace is covered over. You can't out-sin. You can't out-mess up the beauty and the joy and the glory of God's grace. See, it's been my joy over the years to be given the massive privilege of uniting two people as one flesh. And it's been heartbreaking but rewarding to tell a few folks that they first need to know Christ as evidenced by a devotion to his church. And in a couple of situations, even in the last few years, along with the shepherding love of others in our church, I've had the responsibility to throw up a warning flag. And in two specific cases, actually three, 
But in two cases of the three where those warnings were heeded, God has blessed the individual with a godly, joyous marriage. He's about to do that with another couple. And that in and of itself is a very difficult thing to approach. But a big part of my task and my goal this morning is to equip you and myself all the more so that we have the strength to be humble enough to be more concerned with a person's soul and their destiny and their marital condition than we are about our popularity with them. That is a big part of biblical preaching, being a whole lot more concerned with people than you are about what they think of you. Now, I'm concerned about what you think of me. If I weren't, I'd be obtuse, and that's not helpful. Same with you. You should be concerned about what people think of you, but you should be infinitely more concerned with fearing God, loving God, being faithful to him. If you are faithful to him, you will certainly be faithful to people, and let God be the one to assess it all, right? It's not to say that you want to utterly dismiss what other people think. By the way, if you utterly dismiss what other people think, you are utterly dismissing what God thinks. Your devotion to God means that you will not be the fool who rejects counsel. How the proverb describes it, right? Well, point number one from our text this morning in Ephesians 5. And as you can tell, in covering this much text, we're going to move at a, a different rate in order to get finished before you have to go home for dinner. <laughs> Point number one, the comfort of submitting to your husband. There's an imperative here. You know that an imperative is telling somebody what to do. I'll never forget one time uh, I'd been involved in this man's life for a while trying to help him, was discipling him, and he got really upset with me one time, and I said, you know, I, I just think it'd be better if you did this, and he said, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I said, okay, well then, I'm not sure we can help each other, but just, you know, get used to the fact that the Bible tells you what to do. And so here we have a, a place where the Bible tells you what to do, gals. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That in and of itself should be massively helpful. Submit to your own husbands as to what? Your boss, right? It's not what it says. Submit to your own husbands because he's a great guy and he never messes up or hardly ever does anything wrong. No. Now, maybe you're married to a guy like that. But that's not what it says. It says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What's the, what's the idea? It's that you're submitting to the Lord when you submit to your husband. See how that, in a large sense, takes so much of the pressure off. Well, if I submit to my husband, then this will, you know, go haywire, and he'll mess that up for sure. And if I don't fix it, and if I don't tell him, you know, da 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 no, no, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Let the Lord bear the responsibility of mopping up the mess that your husband is going to make if, in fact, he's going to make a mess. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's fitting. It just means it makes sense. Back in verse 22, Colossians 3, bondservants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, not by way of eye service, right? Not just doing it for the sake of being seen. That's what eye service is. You're doing it for the perception of someone's eyes, their vision. 
So you're not doing it by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So the wife who submits to her husband, in, in a sense, now be careful how you take this. There's a sense in which she kind of momentarily bypasses her husband. There is that level of difficulty in marriage where a woman is simply doing what she knows she can because she trusts the Lord. Now, the context here is submission in Colossians 3, and I've backed up to point to this relationship between the employer and the employee that the person who does what he does, not as with eye service or as a people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart, he does so fearing the Lord. And then further in verse 23, very similar to what he has said uh, earlier in Colossians 3.18 about doing what you do as is fitting before the Lord. He says, whatever you do, work heartily, not hardly, <laughs> heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he's switched gears because he's talking about the employment relationship, but it's in the same flow of the matter of submission, doing what you're doing because it's fitting before the Lord. And then in Ephesians 5, 19, Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this matter of submission is not simply something that takes place between a wife with her husband and a, an employee with her, uh, his or her employer. It's really a matter of, of Christian relationship. This is why, this is a, a big part of why church membership is so phenomenally important because you're showing yourself to be humble enough to devote yourself officially with a body. You're submitting yourselves to others who have submitted themselves to you. It's not about you submitting to the leadership. Please don't think that. It's not that at all. It's you submitting to the church and the church submitting to you. It's that interdependent relationship that requires an official commitment that says this is the body of which I'm a member. Connected, just like my finger is connected to me. My finger is important. My finger needs the body. My body needs the finger. Same with every member in the body. Well, then in 1 Peter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, a very parallel text, but in a different context. Here's what I mean by that. Paul, in Ephesians 5, our text this morning, is dealing with Christian marriage uh, between two saved people, really, in 1 Peter, the context is that of living in a dark and desperate world as those who are elect but exiles. So Peter really is addressing the saved spouse who's dealing with an unsaved spouse. So he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. You say, man, if only my husband were saved, this would be a whole lot easier. Well, you don't really know that. Now, there is a sense in which it certainly would be better, no question. You have the joy of fellowship, you have the joy of worshiping together, you have the joy of serving Christ together, all those things that really you have with every Christian, but there's a certain special joy that comes in doing that with your spouse. You cannot do that if you're married to an unbeliever. And then there's the greater difficulty, I believe, of being married to a false convert. 
I think that's a whole lot more difficult than being married to the person who, who's, he's not lukewarm, he's cold. He's been honest about his spiritual condition. He said, yeah, I'm not, not into that. I'm not saying it's easy. I think it's less difficult than the scenario where a person's married to someone who claims to know Christ and clearly doesn't. Either way, Peter's talking to both situations here where he says, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. I don't know how to most effectively communicate the importance of this command except to say don't color it don't don't change it don't do anything to it but just recognize that it's very clear gals when your husband is disobedient to the word your command is to win him over with a limit of six words no you're not you're not given an economy a you know a budget of of words it's no words your husband's disobedient to the word, and I think you can apply this to your Christian husband, gals. When your husband's disobedient to the word, start this way. Recognize that Peter has said very clearly, you're to win him over with God's word, not with your word. In other words, without any of your words. It's the power of God's word to change him. It's not your words. And in an effort to do this, to recognize that you've never changed him. That's a great start, isn't it? You've never changed your husband. You might have manipulated him into some sort of behavioral change, but you can't change his heart. God and God alone changes the heart. So where you may have found yourself effective in producing change in behavior because you got just angry enough or just sly enough or whatever you thought it took you know you might say my husband's just a mess I mean I got to do whatever it takes what it takes is bite your tongue whatever you have to do and this is not simply a logistic event it's a matter of the heart like I said it's a matter of trusting the Lord that he can produce the change and, and our experience in marriage all of us our experience in relationships should be it should bring it to the place where we would say, so far, I haven't proven effective at getting my spouse to be the person that I want him or her to be. Therefore, maybe it's time to turn it over to the Lord and stop talking. Clear advice from Peter. It's not just advice. It's a command. Why? That they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. See, they're not obeying the word. So when you obey the word in your conduct, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, you will trust then that they may be won over by that conduct. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. See that? Yeah, Peter uses this term a number of times, this term precious. It means it's of infinite value. It's of great value. It's, it's like, you know, your engagement ring. It's of that great value to you. You treasure it. It's, it's immeasurably precious to you. Maybe you have a piece of jewelry from a, you know, a parent or a grandparent or a dear friend, and you hold it so very valuable. And, 
God holds your gentle and quiet spirit with that level of value. It's precious to him. It's not just about winning. You see, it's not just about winning your husband over. It's about nurturing that spirit that's precious to God. It's important to him. And therefore, it brings you joy because you know he's pleased. So verse, uh, verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And gals, I know. I'm certain. I mean, you are the weaker vessel physically, and so there's no question in marriage there will be times where maybe you will fear your husband and his ability to do physical damage. And, and that is legitimately fearful. Here Peter is, is saying, obey God in the same way that Sarah obeyed Abraham, who at times was a fool. And put Sarah in great danger a number of times. Lying twice. Told a half truth. She's my sister. Didn't mention that she was his wife. And so nearly brought about their deaths both times that he did that. And, and men will do stupid things. And men will endanger their wives. And here Peter says, let your trust be in the Lord. And you, again, gals, you may be married to a wonderful man, but you've seen him fail. And if you haven't, you will. And the issue is not that you highlight the failure or even that you highlight the successes so much, but that you highlight the certain uninterruptible faithfulness of God. You can trust him. You can trust God. You should trust God. Win your husband over without a word. And then in chapter 2, and this is really the impetus or the basis behind this command, gals. The command to win your husband over without a word and to do so with a gentle and quiet spirit uh, finds motivation back in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, beginning with verse 22. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. See that? You say, wait a minute. I didn't get married to suffer. No, but it's part of it. And really, as I think you know... We've been through 1 Peter, right? Much of the marriage relationship is the training ground for the battleground outside the home. There will be times where your husband who loves you will not treat you as you ought to be treated. And so Peter steps in and says, you know, to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you. And, of course, the context of 1 Peter, again, is not the suffering that takes place in the home so much as the suffering that takes place in this exiled land. This land where exiles are set apart to suffer for Christ's glory. But the home is the training ground. It's not to say that the husbands ought to think of it that way. <laughs> Let's start your exercises. It's going to be a tough world out there. Let's make things as difficult as possible here. You know, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No, that's not. We'll get to the men in a bit. It's not the idea. How do you do this, right? How do you follow Christ's example? Peter says he, is, he left you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Stop. Let it sink in. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his 
mouth. Now, that's not you because you have sinned and you have had deceit in your mouth if you're human. You've done both of those things. Men and women have done both of those things. Christ has not. And, and yet he's given us the example to follow. Then verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. You see, so often in the marriage relationship, we can think that because I've been reviled, I deserve the opportunity to revile back. I've been insulted, I should insult back. That's how we sometimes think. Jesus didn't do that. He who never reviled didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Certainly could have. He certainly could have. He could have said, hey, let me tell you how this all ends up. But he didn't. He endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that was set before him. How did he do it? If you've been through marital counseling with me, you know the answer to this question. It is that he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. The righteous judge who is never unrighteous, never lies, never misses a beat, never misses the conduct of your spouse, never misses your conduct and your faithfulness and your humility and your endurance and your knowledge and your increasing godliness. He doesn't miss any of that. And he always judges rightly or righteously. Always. So the call then in the marriage relationship, really in every relationship, is to look to him. Now think of it. There have been times, I'm sure you've been guilty of this, I've certainly been guilty of this, in um, a less than agreeable moment with someone else, it's been my effort to persuade that person to come over to my side. And so in essence, I'm entrusting myself not to the one who judges righteously, but to the person that I'm not in agreement with. I'm entrusting myself to that person, believing, trusting that that person is eventually going to come around and realize I'm right. Right? We've all done that. The call that Peter is giving here in chapter 2, in preparation for chapter 3, in preparation for the marriage relationship, is to entrust yourself to the one who judges righteously. Even when you're right, you don't have to prove it. And even when you're right, you might not be right. You know what I mean by that? You might think you're right. You might be convinced you're right. And maybe there's one little detail that you weren't aware of. And later you find out you were not right. Isn't it better to have entrusted yourself to the one who judges righteously rather than in the moment trusting yourself and trusting your spouse to eventually come around? Doesn't it feel better to be able to look back on that situation and say, you know, Lord, thank you that you gave me the strength and the grace and the humility and the endurance to just keep my mouth shut, even though I was, I was a thousand percent convinced I was right. Chose to be humble and just listen. I, I, I often think of this circumstance when I played football in college. I, I loved playing football. I loved my defensive coordinator. had a fantastic football coach all four years of my college experience. Just a great coach. He was a godly man. And I wanted to please him. And there was a time where I was doing what I knew I was supposed to do. I, I was fulfilling the responsibility that I had. And he wasn't seeing it right. And I was not accustomed to not debating. And he kept giving me a hard time. Barnett, do what you're supposed to do. And after the fourth time, and I, I don't know how I did it. I mean, I was 19 years old. I don't know how I managed to do it, but I kept my mouth shut. And he, he came over and he said, Barnett, 
I owe you an apology in front of the whole team. I'm like, whoa, who is this guy? I owe you an apology. I said, okay. He said, you've been doing what you're supposed to do. I had the play wrong in my head. What a rewarding experience that maybe the only time in my life up to that point, I had kept my mouth shut. Whereas in the past, he called me Barnett the debater. Well, that was part of why I wasn't going to debate. But doesn't it feel better? Now, listen, I'm not boasting. That was very rare for me. (laughs) Very unusual. But isn't it better? Can't you rejoice in the Lord when you can look back and, and say, Father, thank you that you gave me the grace. Wow, how can we get to the place where we do that more than not? Adhere to God's word. Trust God to do the work of change in you. Look to his example. Entrust yourself. Decide right now. In this moment, not, you know, in the next argument. But in this moment, decide. I'm going to be the person that entrusts myself to the one who judges righteously. Next time my husband says something or next time my wife says something that proves in the moment that he's actually an alien from a different planet, I'm not going to entrust myself to him at that moment. I'm going to entrust myself to the one who judges righteously, and I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to be gracious and think of how I can serve my spouse. Listen to how this text wraps up. Verse 24, 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This gets hyper-theological all of a sudden. He's been so very practical in terms of the dealing with uh, not sinning against someone who sins against us. And then he speaks of entrusting ourselves to the Father as Jesus did. And then he speaks specifically about Jesus' atonement. This is why we say the death and the resurrection of Christ are everything. It's the basis of all of our thinking. This is what it comes back to. Look at what he did. He himself, the one who didn't revile when he was reviled, the one who didn't insult when he was insulted, the one who didn't threaten when he suffered, he who entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, gals, when you're called to submit to a husband who's disobedient to the word, this is what you do. This is what you do. You remember that he, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, that mindset really, really does change everything. Choosing not to live to sin, but living to righteousness. Clinging to righteousness. Remembering that God is trustworthy. Remembering that the sin that I'm about to commit by lashing out at my spouse is a sin. you got to think of it this way. This will help you so much. That, the sin that I'm about to commit against my spouse, is a sin that Christ died for. So, moving forward, if I go ahead and commit that sin, what have I done? I've committed a sin of presumptuousness. I've said, I know Christ died for that sin, but I'm going to commit it anyway. Trampling. On his death. 
has massive theological implications. The text goes on then to say, by his wounds you have been healed. See that? By his wounds. This is not dealing with physical wounds or physical healing. It's spiritual. Why would Peter suddenly change the topic to something related to physical well-being? By his wounds you have been healed. By his suffering, by his death, you have been healed. You've been made new. You've been given new life. You're no longer the dead man. You are the alive man or woman, specifically woman, up to this point in our study in Ephesians 5. You've been healed. You're not the person who can't respond rightly. You're not the person who says, I can't take it anymore. You don't have that right. You don't have that need. Now you're the person who says, Christ died for my sins, and I know it. I get that he died for my sins, and therefore my sins are something that I hate passionately. And I'm going to think before I talk. I'm going to think before I act. I'm going to think before I move. And then this is just kind of, Peter just kind of ties this up with what we all know and love. For you were straying like sheep, right? The elect are unsaved sheep who eventually become saved sheep. You see that in the flow of John 10. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's caused you to make your way to him. He shepherded you. That's what a shepherd does. A sheep doesn't find his way anywhere except to the next blade of grass. The shepherd nurtures and cares for and takes care of the sheep. So when you and I were straying like sheep, we could have been that spouse who said, I'm just going to fight back. I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm not going to allow this to go on anymore. It's not fair. It's not right. But if you're in Christ, you you remember verse 25 that says you were straying like sheep. That's who you were. But now you've returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. So you entrust yourself to the one who judges righteously. And you remember that he bore your sins on the cross. And you live not to sin, but you live to righteousness. Now why? Why? Verse 23 in our text from Ephesians 5. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. Now, ladies, this is not a command for the husband. It is a theological statement. It's a doctrinal fact that your husband is the head. You say, my husband's not the head. Yes, he is. This isn't a command to the husband. He's still speaking to women, to wives. Paul's not telling husbands to be the head. He's telling the wife that her husband is her head. So there's a need to understand that theological reality in the marital relationship. Proverbs 11.22 says, As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. And this is necessarily and, and rightly applied to the adulterous woman, but the woman who recognizes that one of her greatest duties and greatest privileges is to trust the Lord by entrusting herself to her husband is a, a woman who would never be described this way. A ring of gold in a swine snout. You, you get that picture, right? It's still a pig. 
Regardless of the fact you try to dress it up with a piece of jewelry, it's still a nasty, hairy pig. It smells and all that stuff. But a beautiful woman who lacks discretion is that way. Proverbs 21.9, it's better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Can you imagine living on the corner of a roof? That'd be a tough life. But it'd be better than living with a woman who likes to fight. Proverbs 21.19, it's better to live in a desert than with a contentious and vexing woman, an angry woman. Proverbs 25.24, it's better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. So the proverb kind of boils it down. Your house might be great, but it'd be better to live on the corner of the roof away from the contentious woman. That's the idea. It'd be better to not live with her than to live with her. But you've got to live with her, so, you know, go to the roof. That'd be better. You might get struck by lightning, but that'd be better. So Proverbs 31, as you know, let's look at verse 10 for a moment. Helpful here. An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and she will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So I don't get enough praise around here. Well, a woman who fears the Lord, she'll be praised. It doesn't say specifically who the subject of that praise is. It says who the object is. It's the woman who fears the Lord. God will praise her. It goes on to say that her children will praise her. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. She's productive. How does she do that with a husband that's, that's a deadbeat? He's just a big waste. She fears the Lord. She entrusts herself to the Lord. Verse 24 of Ephesians 5 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I was teaching on this passage one time, and a lady said to me, Todd, what do you mean by that? And I said, oh, let me just read it again. Um, As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And she said, Todd, what do you mean by that? And I said, oh, well, let me read it again. (laughs) She got the point after the third reading. I don't mean anything by it. I just know that everything means everything. Say, but what about the, uh, the obvious question always, what about those situations where my husband asked me to do something illegal? Well, of course you don't do that. Simple enough, can we move on? Of course you don't do that. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, though, says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God, so you see not a hierarchy Galatians as Paul has told us in Galatians that there is equality we are equal in Christ men you're not better women your husband is not better he's not more valuable he doesn't hold a greater place I remember years ago Kimberly and I were having a little discussion um, when I was the school principal and she was the receptionist she did a lot of things at the school Uh, she taught PE she taught a few other classes drama music she's amazing at all of it we have this discussion, and I, and I realized something that I, I, had, I would never have thought was the case, but she said, she said something like, 
you know, maybe you just think that your role at the school is, you know, so much more important than mine. <laughs> Obviously, I was, you know, influencing her to think that maybe I thought that somehow. So I said, wow, what's more important than the receptionist? There's nothing more important than the receptionist in any business. And again, all that she did was of such great value, and it just struck me in the moment that somehow or another I'd failed to help her understand the great value of her efforts and her faithfulness and her achievements. So there is no greater value in the husband. Scripture does not indicate anything like that. But there are different roles. And the man is the head, even if he doesn't act like it, even if he's not worthy. By the way, no man is worthy of being the head. It's Christ's dictum. It's what he has determined. And gals, you might say, well, Todd, you surely don't understand. I mean, my, my husband is so difficult, and I'm, I'm unequally yoked. I'm married to an unbeliever. And so you're right, I, I don't live in that reality but I know that scripture is sufficient scripture is sufficient we'll talk more about that in a bit so we've looked at the comfort of submitting to your husband there really should be a comfort why because you're trusting the Lord you're not believing that your husband's one day going to rise up and be everything that you had dreamed he would be you're trusting the Lord because the Lord's trustworthy so there's comfort in that point two we want to look at the joy of loving your wife man Paul says here in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As I mentioned earlier, the proverb says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And you might think, but I may have found an exception in my wife. And that is not true. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. The proverb does not say he who finds a wife, in some cases, finds the ultimate wife. You ever heard somebody say, you know, don't look for the perfect person. Look for the person who's perfect for you. That person doesn't exist either. Certainly you want to, you know, find somebody that you get along with. That'd be good. But your role is, men, your role is not to assess whether or not your wife is a good thing. Your role is to believe that this is a true doctrinal statement from God. Your wife is good. Your role is to love her as Christ loves his bride. Colossians 3:19 says, "Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them." I won't go into the details here, but the NAS is quite different, same verse. "Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them." Early in our marriage, we were coming in from the beach, and um, I was loaded up with, you know, ice chest, beach ball. There's probably a kid or two in there. I don't know. And my wife says to me, my awesome, amazing, forgiving, loving, beautiful wife says, could you bring in the, you know, something? And I'm standing here, you know, already overloaded like a pack mule, and I start to shake. And I'm going, Aah! And I realized in that moment I was being, becoming embittered against her. She had probably already made six loads. Here I'm halfway through my one load. I was teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage at that time. And I'd been meditating on this passage and I thought, oh my word. I'm becoming embittered against 
that which is good and God has blessed me with. And then it hit me, and I'm happy to confess that every sinful interaction that my wife and I have ever had, every single one can be traced back to my violation of this command. Every single one in my marriage, without fail. Guys, to just obey this. Now listen, you can't obey this without chapters 1 and 2 in Colossians. You've got to understand the gospel. But to sidestep this is to destroy your marriage, to destroy your wife, to destroy your life. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And how? Well, go back to chapter 3, verse 12. Colossians. Chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. That's how. You put on these things that he's about to tell you to put on. And how do you do it? You do it as one who has been chosen. I had a wonderful note from Kimberly I've kept on my desk for a while. She says some nice things. You know, had to make a lot of stuff up and say some nice things. And she says at the end, and I'm so thankful that God chose you for me. And we can get into the theology of that, but I'd rather just be happy and be glad that she's happy about that. Um, (laughs) But I do know that God chose me and God chose her. That we know. So you can rest in that. But if you can't, friends, if you can't rest in the doctrine of election, your marriage will always be sideways at best. Because you will always think that you deserve to be treated better because you treat your spouse better than you used to. But if you rest in what God has done, and he's calling you to do the same thing. Let's read it again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, right? And then what does he say? Holy and beloved, you've been set apart and you're loved by God. Put on what? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive see the moment you inject a man-centered man-made made-up theology into this that says that you as a dead man somehow could have brought yourself to Christ your marital theology your philosophy of marriage goes in the tank You think you deserve something because you chose Christ. That is the necessary result of a man-made theology. On the other hand, if you see yourself as a dead man who is awakened by a good God, you simply want to extend that same kind of love, and, and you allow the word of God to beat you down away from that man-centered thinking and sanctified into a high view of God, you will be humble. You will be a good husband. There's so much more in that text. I encourage you to commit it to your heart. 1 Peter 3, 7, then. You husbands in the same way. In the same what way? In the same way of submission. That's what he's been talking about. That's the context. Submission. You husbands in the same way with a submissive spirit even toward your wife. Now, this isn't the same kind of submission, right? There's only one head in the home. But in the same way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. And I'm about to tell you what I've probably told you before. Many of you have heard me say this before. I was counseling a couple many years ago. They were very angry at each other. The man especially was very angry. And I I reminded him of this. I said, you're to live with your wife in an understanding way. And, I mean, he he, he looked like he was on fire. And he looked at me and he said, but I don't understand her. And I said, that's not what the passage says. 
passage doesn't say treat her well because you understand her. I mean, what man understands any woman? Ultimately, right? It's not what it says. I'm not speaking disparagingly of women. I'm talking men are just not real smart most of the time. I dug myself out of that hole, didn't I? (laughs) But to live with your wife in an understanding way is to be the man. It's to be the shock absorber. It's to be the one who will be understanding, even when things are not understandable. Not to pretend that you understand. That's not the idea. It's to understand that she is the weaker vessel. Does it make her of lesser value? But that's the design. Now, why? Why are you to love your wives as Christ? I'm just following the grammar here. Why are you to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Here's why. Men, are you writing this down? I hope you are. If not, I hope you'll commit it to memory. This is why you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church, that he might sanctify her. Wow, that should help. You say, my wife is just not as mature as she should be. Well, you're to love her with a dying love. And that's the vehicle of her spiritual growth. When you love her as Christ loves the church, God sanctifies her through your love. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. Who doesn't understand that illustration? Who has never washed something with water and experienced a positive outcome? It's an illustration to help us understand that as Christ washes the church with the water of the word. The husband is to emulate that type of leadership, that headship. Why? So that he, and he's talking about Christ here, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, in beauty, in magnificent glory. The sanctifying process of the church one day would make the church worthy of being presented to Christ as his bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And do you think of your role in your marriage as being that? Do you see this is your role? And if so, how are you endeavoring to do this? You know, there's this great fallacy when you you, you see a, a man who you would describe as humble and his wife is just kind of a spiritual mess, and you say, wow, I don't get that. You know, she's, she's kind of a difficult person, but he's so wonderful. He's not washing her with the water of the word. Get that straight, guys. Don't believe your clippings. Don't believe what people say about you if your wife is not being sanctified as the church is being sanctified by the word. Don't believe it. You, you might have a gentle spirit. And you might have a greater propensity to keep your mouth shut when other people would speak up and say something that they shouldn't. But you're not humble if you're not willing to wash your wife with the water of the word and by the way to do so with gentleness, with great care, with great expectation. 
Verse 28 in Ephesians 5 says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And this is one of those texts that often gets misused, and people will say silly things like, you can't love others until you first love yourself. There is no command in the Bible to love yourself. In fact, just a quick look at 2 Timothy 3 will reveal to us that those who love themselves deliberately, intentionally, are not Christians. They're apostate. They're proud, they're arrogant, they're abusive, they're disobedient to their parents, they're ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, on and on and on. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that whole string of things starts with the fact that they are lovers of self. So what's the deal here then? Both of these texts are from Paul. Well, Paul goes on, I think, to help us understand. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. You see, it's a natural reality that you don't hate yourself. You know when your physical needs arise and you deal with them. The point is that in your natural commitment to yourself, you should see that as the basis, not the goal, but the starting place for how you should be sensitive to your wife's physical and specifically her spiritual needs. In Ephesians 5, Paul goes on here to say, again, verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. You see the uh, connection here? Christ nourishes his what? His body. So a good man, a faithful man, will nourish his wife as he already naturally nourishes his body. Why? Because we are members of his body. We are members of his body. There is a commitment to the local church. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I had the great privilege this last Saturday, a week ago yesterday, to proclaim before a couple hundred people that Stephen Henshaw and now Tyler Henshaw are one flesh. But the reason, really, that I had that great privilege, aside from the fact that they asked me to do that, is that they subjected themselves to the church. A very young couple, beginning their lives together, both of them committed to discipleship, committed to learning from other Christians, learning from God's word in discipleship, in turning their backs on all things worldly and devoting themselves to Christ. And as a result, the certain confidence is that I can stand as a pastor before them and solemnize their marriage. I can't do that with everybody. But when a person is devoted to the church, then I can sleep at night and with good conscience say, this is right before the Lord. So, Stephen left his father and mother. Tyler left her father and mother. And Paul says here, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's a profound mystery that Christ's body is that for which he died. You know that. I know you know that. Acts 20 tells us Christ shed his blood, God shed his blood for 
the whole world? No, for the church. He shed his blood for the church. Men, this is the ministry that you're called to. This is your primary ministry. Men who are leaders of the church, men who are elders, are called to live with their wives as a one-woman man in such a way that they set an example because if they, if they can't manage their own home, including their children, how are they going to manage the church of God, Paul says. The man who manages his own home is a man who cares for his wife in such a way that she knows he would die for her. It's a mystery. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, Paul says, but it's not so much a mystery that we can't gain from the example that men, we ourselves would be willing to die for our wives and to experience the joy of loving them in that way. And they know, your wife knows. Verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul adds that little tag there at the end regarding respect. Um, kind of boils it down. Each one of you men love your wife, you know, as you naturally love yourself. Be more concerned, really, at least be equally concerned about your wife's needs as you are your own. And then wives respect your husband. You say he's not respectable. And I say that doesn't have anything to do with what Paul's saying. Respect your husband. Why? Because God made him the head. He'll grow in respectability if he is in Christ. Well, that is our text. I want to just give a few practical helps. You know, whether you're married or not, whatever your place in life is, I think these will help regarding this text. Number one, number one, thank God for his grace. No matter what your circumstance, thank God for his grace. We are co-heirs in the grace of life with our spouses. Be thankful. Thank God for his grace that he's given you a husband or a wife, regardless of whether or not they're saved. If you cannot be thankful for your spouse, you're saying, God, you did me a disfavor. Specifically, when you blame your husband, gals, men, when you blame your wife, they're not saved. How could they reject Christ? You're saying to God, I refuse to be thankful to you for the grace of life that you've given to me in marriage. Number two, be humble and thankful, no matter your condition. Be humble and thankful. You remember God is opposed to, opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I was going to read through all, all through 1 Corinthians 7, but I won't. Uh, no time left to do that. But please remember that if you are unequally yoked, your best response is to be humble and thankful. You say, but it's, it's very, very difficult being married to an unbeliever. Yeah, but you can't send him away. You can't leave. There are some circumstances that allow for, there are grounds for divorce. There's no such thing as a biblical divorce. You ever heard that terminology? Well, was the divorce biblical? There's no such thing as a biblical divorce. There is such a thing as, as faithfulness in the divorce by one or the other party. Many times neither party is, is faithful, but in some cases one is faithful. And so to let an unbeliever leave, I've, I've had the, the difficult responsibility at times of saying to someone, you have no marriage. Well, but I can't divorce him. You know, going to the courthouse to make official what 
the spouse has already made a reality is not divorcing your spouse. If the divorce has already taken place, the unbeliever has caused the divorce to simply make it legal in the eyes of man is nothing more than an official act that man requires in order for your taxes and other such issues. But an unbeliever who leaves, you're told to let him leave. Be humble and be thankful. Well, number three, be a disciple. Be a disciple. Spend less time seeking wisdom from people you don't know on the Internet and more time listening to people who are willing to pour into your life. Have a, have a commitment to the church that shows itself in your devotion to Christ via his church. Learn from those who will speak the truth in love because they really love you and really know you. Chances are those who have so much time to counsel you and the rest of their Facebook friends 24 hours a day can do so because they have little impact on people they actually know. And so they attempt to have impact on people they don't know through their keyboard. Be a disciple. Number four, avoid those who avoid discipleship. Avoid them. Matthew 28 is not a call primarily to see that people are saved. It is a call to see that people are disciples. The person who becomes a disciple shows himself to be saved. The great commission of the church is to be involved in discipleship. Be a disciple. And to avoid those who avoid discipleship. Number five. Be devoted to your local church with the faithful use of your spiritual gifts. Now, again, these are not just for you if you're married. They're for you if you're not married. Whether you're looking forward to marriage or you're looking back on a marriage that was dissolved, you're in a difficult marriage or you're in a great marriage, do these things and God will bless you. Let your neighbors, your family, and especially your children see that the church is your priority. You have friends that come in from out of town, show them that the church is your priority. Let them know that you'll be really happy to spend time with them after you worship Christ with the body. Be devoted to your local church with the faithful use of your spiritual gifts. Number six, ask questions. Whether you're married for 50 years or you're thinking about being married, ask questions of godly people. It's really a a factor in discipleship. Number seven, keep the marriage bed pure. You say, well, of course I wouldn't invite someone into our bed. It means a whole lot more than that. What you and your spouse do is your business and no one's business. And don't think it's cute to wiggle into other people's lives by involving yourself in things that they might do together. There's nothing admirable about that. And yet in our culture, that is so significantly crept into the church. Keep the marriage bed pure, the writer of Hebrews says. And then one last note specifically to the unmarried. In Genesis 2, verse 18, as you know, the Lord has said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So two last instructions, two last points for those of you who are unmarried. Number one, 
get married. First, thank God for his grace. Be humble. Be a disciple. Avoid those who avoid discipleship. Be devoted to your local church with the faithful use of your spiritual gifts. But get married. You say, but I'm not ready yet. Well, then get ready. Be a disciple. Avoid those who avoid discipleship. Be humble. Be thankful. Seek discipleship that will lead to your readiness and affirmation by those who know you and can assist you to become ready. You say, but Todd, I have the rare but coveted gift of singleness. Okay, some do. I believe Paul did. Do you desire the benefits of marriage? Why do you have to ask me that? Are you pursuing the benefits of marriage without marriage? Companionship. Ministry partnership. Parenting. Physical intimacy. Physical enjoyment. Cohabitation, all things that are for marriage. If you have the gift of singleness, then you will have a greater propensity for personal purity, and you must nurture that purity with strong, spirit-filled passion, holding on to singleness for selfish reasons while engaging in efforts to ease personal temptations, whether it be some form of private self-gratification or graphic pornography, is absolutely wrong. Be becoming a one-spouse person. What God has said is not good would be rebellion for the person who finds his mother's basement to be his safe place. The guy who just refuses to become the man that he needs to be. Or the woman who refuses to become the woman that she needs to be just because it's, you know, life's a whole lot easier not being married. That's not the gift of singleness. That's settling into a level of immaturity that says, I just kind of like things the way they are right now. It seems better. You say, but I can't find that person, my, you know, my soulmate. God did not call you to a soulmate. He called you to either submit or to love. To submit as the church submits to Christ or to love as Christ loves the church. I did not marry Kimberly because it was God's will. I married Kimberly because she let me. I married Kimberly because I wanted to. I married her because she loved Christ. And I wasn't looking for God's will because Psalm 37 forces delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And he gave us the desire of our heart. Find the person you want to marry and marry them. If they'll marry you, if they'll let you. If they won't, it's not God's will. I had a guy tell me that one time. I'm like, oh, it's that easy. Number two, raise children. Genesis 1 tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Ephesians 6, after Ephesians 5 that we're in this morning, goes on to say, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That assumes that you're going to have children if you're not going to provoke them to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Back earlier in verse uh, chapter 6, he says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. How are children going to know how to obey the Lord for this is right? If you're not having children, 
Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. How are children going to learn that? You say, but I'm just too old. I'm too old to get married, and I'm certainly too old to have kids. Well, you're not too old to get married, and you can always adopt. You say, I'm too old to adopt a baby. Adopt a 17-year-old. You say, whoa. <laughs> and we laugh, and it's funny, but there are 17-year-olds who need parents. There are 17-year-olds. There are 16-year-olds and 12-year-olds who need parents. You don't have any business adopting them if you don't have a spouse. Proverbs 1, verse 8, hear my son, your father's instruction. How are they going to hear if they don't have a father? How are you going to be a father if you're not married? You say, well, that happens. Yes, it does, but it's not God's design. Do not forsake your mother's teaching, my son. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. That proverb goes on and on and on and on. With a father telling his son things to avoid. Men, your children need your correction. They need you first to be a husband that loves his wife like Christ loves the church. Gals, your kids or some kids, whether they've been born yet or not, they need, and whether, maybe you have adult children, they need you to submit to your husband. Not only so they have a pattern but so they know who Christ is, so that they know what the church is supposed to do with Christ. Well, I said I'd give you two points. One quick third one, be an example. Get married, have children, and be an example deliberately. I don't mean just, you know, know that there are people following you. Deliberately disciple people. Uh, one of the great joys uh, that Kimberly came home with after her baby shower yesterday was that uh, Amy, our dear friend, had told her that uh, many of the things that her daughters are learning from Kimberly, they would one day have the privilege to transfer. <laughs> I can barely think about it, much less talk about it. This little girl whose name is going to be Charlotte in a few days, my daughter, that they would have the privilege one day to teach Kimberly's daughter what Kimberly is currently teaching them as a disciple, discipler of theirs. Don't just decide to get married because you want to be married. Don't just have kids because you want to complete your family. And if you say, Todd, none of these categories fit me, I'm not going to argue with you, but I will argue with you if you say you don't know somebody who fits one of these categories. Be an example. Father, we've looked at much this morning. We've looked at so much this morning. And I confess uh, to you publicly as I did this morning privately that I am keenly aware of the fact that we have by no means covered the gamut of matters related to marriage. But I do believe that because your word sufficiently covers the matter, and in particular on a day where we are not only subject to, but greatly influenced by the world's way of thinking, that we simply must bury ourselves in your word 
in order to not only honor you in our lives, that we would hope if married to an unbeliever to win that unbeliever over without a word, whether a false convert or an apostate. Lord, may we find great encouragement. I pray for the women in our church who are married to unbelieving men, some of whom think they are Christians and some who have boldly rejected Christ. I pray for their great strength and, Lord, that we as a church would be massively sensitive to their dilemma, that we would be readily and quickly willing to serve where a home has no head in some cases, that the church would be the surrogate head for a time until you provide that man. Lord, for the man in our church, for whatever reason, who has not found a wife who is a good thing. We trust in your sovereignty as I did being married at, a, at an older age. We, we trust in your sovereignty. But Lord, we, I think if we scour the scripture, we see that there's really no escape valve from the mandate of marriage. We thank you that there isn't. So, Father, we look to you as a church, not as individuals who are out on our own trying to figure this out, but we look as a church who's committed to discipleship, committed to your glory. And Lord, we ask that you would move on each of our hearts to be faithful in that discipleship, that we'd find ourselves ultimately having been faithful at the end of our lives because we poured ourselves into relationships in the church and that younger people could say, Father, thank you, you made an impact on me through that imperfect but faithful servant who was an example to me. Father, in this moment, we give you great thanks for the imagery you've given us in the scripture that Christ, who is our head, died for us. We are his body. And we look forward to that day when we truly, literally, will be presented to him, by him, in splendor and glory, all for his exaltation and our eternal good. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.